This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There were some numbers that are out today. This is uh, this is a serious story we're going to start with today. There's some numbers out today. Um, Hamilton apparently has the worst five-year survival rate for breast cancer in the province of Ontario. And we are also, apparently, near the bottom in lung cancer survival. Now, just so we're clear... I don't want to make this a completely sensational thing where everyone says we're like way off the grid. It is close. We're not talking about huge chasms between us and the provincial average, but we are still near or at the bottom. And I think that is troubling considering the facilities that we have in this city. And I have had two family members, two close family members that have been in the Jurovinsky Center in the last few years. And I've seen how remarkable the services and the care is there that even with that care and those facilities, we are still near the bottom of the provincial average is troubling. Well, joining me to try and help walk through this and explain why this might be, Dr. Ralph Meyer is the CEO of the Jurovinsky Hospital and Cancer Center. Uh, He is the Vice President of Oncology and Palliative Care with Hamilton Health Sciences. He joins me now. Dr. Meyer, thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, It's nice to meet with Scott. Thank you. These numbers uh, that just came out, I mean, I know you and the people at the hospital obviously track this, but did you expect when you compare them up against the rest of the province, did you expect for us to be near the bottom? Um, so we've, we've uh, seen these numbers before, and uh, you're quite right. We do track them uh, regularly, and we do a lot of in-depth analysis about them. Uh, and um, I think it would be helpful uh, to describe some of our findings to you as, as to um, uh, why the numbers look like they do. Um, as, as you've said, the, when, when you look at these region by region across the province, they are very close. So there, there are not um, striking differences between the best in the province and the worst in the province in terms of what the number is. But there is variation, and it's important for people to understand that variation. Well, and I want to get to all that stuff, but as we, as we launch into that, as I said in the introduction, we have, I think, and I think you would probably agree, you're the guy in charge, I hope you would agree, we have some of the best cancer treatment facilities in the province here in Hamilton. So my logical leap of expectation would be, since we have those tremendous facilities and those doctors and the staff, we should therefore have much, much better results and should be near the top rather than the bottom of all these. Well, controlling cancer uh, has a lot of factors to it. And um, the, when, when we look at what we control, call a, a cancer control strategy, it begins with prevention. It moves through to how we screen for cancers to try and detect curable cancers in those diseases where screening works. There's then an element of how you move to diagnosis and ensure you're making the correct diagnosis and making it promptly. And then you move through to treatment and ensuring the treatment's effective and safe, and then ensuring the patients who have been through treatment uh, are effectively followed. Uh, we've been through our, our treatment paradigms for breast cancer, and we believe they are top-notch. 
we have work to do, uh, as everyone does, but uh, we follow the, what are called practice guidelines and the treatment standards for treating breast cancer. We do have uh, very good facilities. Uh, we also have uh, very good uh, researchers and uh, physicians, and, and, term, and some of them have, in fact, set international standards with the research they've done and have contributed to writing the guidelines, particularly around breast cancer. Um, when, when we look then at that whole cancer control strategy, what, where we think uh, our work needs to be addressed is actually in the pretreatment stage. It's in the prevention strategies and the screening strategies. Um, and again, you may want to pause there if, if you want to uh, talk a little bit about that. And then there's some aspects about our population that uh, are important to describe. Well, sure. And, and I understand, again, looking at these numbers, that the numbers of breast cancer cases that we actually have in this city, the numbers of diagnosed cases is actually below the provincial average. It's just the five-year survival that falls behind. That We're actually in pretty good shape with the numbers of people coming in with this. Uh, so what's called the incidence, the number of new cases, uh, uh, we are actually below the average in the province. Um, there, our the regions differ uh, in population uh, across the province. Our region, and, and this isn't just the city of Hamilton, it's for the whole uh, region, so what's called the Hamilton, Niagara, Haldeman, Brant, Lynn, um, has some distinctive characteristics, and, and particularly when you start to look at uh, diseases for which there are screening and um, uh, the diseases are associated with aging, you will start to see some differences. Our population is, uh, is older than average in, uh, across the province. In addition, our region actually has a relatively low growth rate in the population. If you compare this to the ring around Toronto in particular, where uh, there's very high growth rates, uh, you, you, will, you, you see differences. And where this comes into play for breast cancer is uh, associated with breast cancer screening. Um, almost a third of women have their cancer detected by screening. And cancers detected by screening uh, ha are associated with better outcomes. Because I presume that's because they're caught earlier. Well, they're caught earlier, but they're also a different type of cancer. And that's some of the controversy about screening. The, the, there is a, a pocket of some of the cancers detected by screening that uh, are destined to do better and uh, have a better outcome than those cancers that are not detected by screening. They're, they, they're smaller, as you're implying, and they're also, in their biology, they're less aggressive. In, in our region, uh, we were one of the first regions to have a systematic, high-quality breast screening strategy. It began in the late 80s. And based on models actually developed through Hamilton, uh, screening subsequently for breast cancer grew across the province. So we've had a long time uh, effective screening strategy across our region. Women enter the screening um, um, uh, construct when, uh, when they turn 50. Uh, so we do screening for women uh, between the ages of 50 and 74. We have fewer women turning 50 and entering into the screening pool. And we have a population of older women, a higher proportion of older women, who have had screening for years and years. 
So in a sense, we have fewer women entering into a new diagnosis of breast cancer where the tumor is smaller and it's less biologically aggressive. And we have a larger proportion of what, because we've been through that uh, phase over the course of the last three decades, and because we have fewer, um, a lower population growth rate. But there's, there's has a, uh, I appreciate there's some complexity to this, but it, but it, it is an important element because we really do want to reassure our, uh, the, the citizens of our region that they are getting top quality mm. care. But in addition, there are aspects like continuing with screening, and I'll tell you a bit about what we're doing there to uh, assist with uh, early diagnosis. But there's another thing that comes up, and that is um, the Spectator several years ago, Steve Buse, a reporter, did a piece, uh, a big piece called Code Red, and it has sort of become the code word, pardon the the pun, uh, for issues of health and socioeconomic challenges. And, And Hamilton has a lot of people who are not in a good economic position. And I, a lot of people are suggesting that those who may not be either first-generation Canadians, or, or sorry, who are, who are not used to the healthcare system or are not financially in a strong place are less likely to make the point of coming in for a screening and therefore when they are diagnosed that that cancer could be further along. Is there anything to that? Is there anything to the fact of our financial situation that poorer people are more likely to have more advanced cancers when they're discovered? Uh, for breast cancer, that's certainly the case. And and uh, we see that across our region. And there are pockets in the Hamilton Urban Core, in the core of St. Catharines, in Port Colburn and Brantford where there, that are associated with what are called the social determinants of health. People who are less well-off uh, from a socioeconomic status uh, may not have a caregiver, uh, may not uh, have the same educational opportunities that other citizens of the region have had. And there's no question that uh, for women with breast cancer, that contributes to the risks of having a later stage diagnosis. Um, it's because of that that uh, we've introduced uh, special screening strategies. We Across our region, we do about 75,000 mammograms a year, and we have 19 screen, we had 19 screening sites. We've introduced three more in the last year, both in downtown Hamilton and Waterdown and in Dunville. Uh, in addition, um, in 2013, we launched what we call the Mobile Coach, and, and the coach is, is not for convenience. It is to um, f- facilitate screening in the population you've just described, where um, we work with public health and with community agencies, and we look to uh, target a population where the mammogram screening rate is somewhere between 0 and 10%. Across the region, our mammogram screening rate of those women who, who we would like to get screened and do get screened is about 65%. And there's areas in the other sort of end of the social determinants of health, those people that are, that are better off, where we exceed 90%. So we need focused strategies for those areas like the Hamilton Urban Core and others where we, we take the mobile coach and working with the community groups and public health, we try to recruit women who have never had a mammogram or never had a pap smear and uh, facilitate their, 
access to cancer screening. We also, with that program, we've over over the uh, the past four years, we found about a uh, uh, hundred family doctors and primary care providers for some of the people that we've seen on the coach. So we're we're trying to use it not just to screen for cancer, but for uh, to facilitate the access to um, healthcare delivery for uh, the person's broader needs. We ju- unfortunately, we just have about a minute or so left here, but I, I want to jump to the other thing that came up in this because, um, uh, by the way, the cancer five-year survival rate was 89% provincially, 85% here. So again, not not wildly off the mark, uh, just a little bit. But the one that really struck me, doctor, is when you look at the numbers for lung cancer, which are, I think, a lot more striking here. We are around the same number for the five-year survival rate, but the incidence of lung cancer in this city, as opposed to 70 per 100,000, we are at over 77, which is significantly higher, I mean, relative to other places. I don't know about breast cancer, but lung cancer, I've always understood, is heavily affected by environmental, either things you've intentionally put into your lungs or things that get sucked into your lungs. Uh, Is Hamilton environmentally a dangerous place for lung cancer? Well, the the bigger driver there, Scott, is uh, uh, cigarette smoking, and uh, we do have uh, higher rates of smoking across our region than in comparison to other regions across the province. And we just just as I described about the screening, and in fact, they tend to be in the same areas. Uh, there are areas where there's lower incidence of smoking and there, where there's higher incidence of smoking. And where we have the highest risks of lung cancer are those where we have the highest risks of smoking. Hmm. So very and, predictable. And so, um, and you know, what it, it, it really requires uh, us thinking through how we address that. The difficulty with smoking is it's an addiction. It's an addiction to nicotine. And nicotine's a really powerful drug. Uh, it's very addictive, and there's harmful effects from the nicotine, but there are harmful effects from the tobacco itself and its smoking in terms of causing cancer. So we need... Uh, you know, important policies and, and regulations across our uh, our province to reduce and and uh, discourage smoking. But but in addition, people who have a nicotine addiction need the support of our healthcare system to uh, try and withdraw and get away from their addiction. It's a really important strategy. We're trying to emphasize that now in patients we see at the Jurovinsky uh, who have cancer because it's become very clear that patients Patients who have cancer and quit smoking do better, have better outcomes than those patients who continue to smoke. Just before I let you go, uh, one thing just to clarify, uh, all of these things talk about the five-year cure rate or the the five-year average. Is it five years? If you are cancer-free for five years, is that still considered the time when you are now officially cancer-free? Is that why that number is used? Uh, it's a benchmark, Scott, and and you know there um, you can unfortunately never say never. The the risks of cancer coming back uh, de- uh, after five years depend very much on the type of cancer uh, that one uh, one has. Uh, it often is associated with uh, a, a cure. 
Um, it doesn't guarantee a cure, but it provides a benchmark and a, and a sort of a, a, a way to um, consider this and, and um, communicate with people about uh, um, sort of where we are with this. Dr. Ralph Meyer, CEO of the Jurovinsky Hospital and Cancer Center. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Scott. You know what strikes me is I'm just listening to that. It popped into my head, and I don't know why this popped into my head. 37 years ago, as we're speaking right now, Terry Fox was running across the country raising money for cancer. And at that time, the idea was we are going to cure cancer. And 37 years later, we are still talking about cancer problems. It is. It seems to be that one thing that we just... For whatever reason, there is not an answer for yet. I think a lot of us back in 1980, if you had asked us in 1980 with the optimism, well, the optimism, the, the excitement around Terry Fox. And then when he, when his cancer came back and all the money that was raised, I think a lot of people, if you had made a bet back then to say by 2017, will we have cured cancer? I bet a lot of people would have said, absolutely. We will have not yet. Numbers are still there and still problematic in this city. But I do want to say that that Jurovinsky Center, having had two family members in there, man, oh man, are we ever, you don't want to ever be there. I assure you, you never want to have to use the place, but if you've got to use the place, we are very lucky to have that in this city. We really are. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. How many places are there on planet Earth named Hamilton? I'll give you some time. Think about it. Okay, that's enough time. If you guessed, if you guessed 129, you are absolutely correct. 129 places on this planet are named Hamilton, which says a few things. It says our city doesn't exactly have the most unique name ever, but it also means there must be a lot of intrigue and history and meaning behind the name if that many places, I suppose, have decided to go by that moniker. Well, it turns out a couple of years ago, there was a book written about these 129 Hamiltons. And the reason we're talking about it now is because someone in Hamilton here found the book, saw the book, and decided to use it, and it's now being used as a fundraiser for Mountain Kids Club. The author of the book is a gentleman from New Zealand named Tim Brooker, who joins us from that place where down there where all the sheep where we get to eat great <laughs> lamb and where the hobbits live. And uh, Tim, thank you for doing this tonight. I appreciate you joining us. No problem. Looking forward to it. Uh, I assume you are in Hamilton, New Zealand. I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so as I was thinking about this today, I can name Hamilton, Ontario. I can name Hamilton, New Zealand, obviously. I can name Hamilton, Bermuda. I can. I think there's a Hamilton in Ohio, but I'm not positive on that. So I'm roughly 125 short. Um, prior to you writing this book, how many could you have named? I could probably have named a few more. The, the, the original one is in Scotland, uh, and uh, I could have named two or three of the ones in Australia as well. Um, but uh, what you have omitted to say is that there are actually four Hamiltons in Canada. Is that okay? So I know of Hamilton, Ontario, obviously, because I'm sitting in it. Uh, where else is there a Hamilton in Canada? Uh, well, there's actually another one in Ontario, believe it or not. There's, there's Hamilton Township in Northumberland County in Ontario, which is not that far north of you. Um, 
There's also one on Prince Edward Island uh, and one in Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, we'll be sure to get our trademark lawyers busy working on that to uh, to get them to change that name. <laughs> um, but so what prompted you that? So you're sitting down there. You know that there are other places. And by the way, I think you're ahead of the average human being if you knew that many Hamiltons. Because I think most people are probably, <laughs> I think most people would be closer to my number than yours. But that's good. Yeah, what yeah, prompted you? What prompted you to decide that you were going to look into this and start writing a book about all these places? Well, I'm a Rotarian uh, in the Hamilton East Club in in New Zealand, and I was looking for a fundraiser. Uh, And uh, I knew that there were other Rotary clubs around the world in Hamilton's. Uh, I I didn't realize there were as many as there are. Uh, And uh, I thought it would be a good way of uh, uh, raising funds. So... uh, um, I embarked on uh, getting all the information I could and writing the book. It must have taken forever, though, not only to find all the Hamiltons to make sure you did that, but then to research each one of them and to be able to write something interesting about each one. It must have taken you forever. Well, I got a lot of help from um, Rotary Clubs around the world. And, of course, the Internet is a great source of information as well. Um, so uh, it didn't take as long as you might think. Uh, and it, it, I, I'm retired, and it was interesting, and it got my uh, interest, and I just kept going at it. Um, and especially you, you, when you keep coming across really interesting ones, and I think the two most interesting, uh, one is in the Czech Republic and one is in South Korea. And I'm just saying they're interesting because they're places you wouldn't expect to find no. Hamilton. Um, um, so the the one in the Czech Republic was named after a, um, Bishop Maximilian Reichsgraf von Hamilton. <laughs> who, who <laughs> That's a mouthful. Bishop, who who was the Bishop of Olomouc? Uh, who they, his family had emigrated from Scotland, and uh, so he ended up there. And then the one in uh, South Korea is really almost an equivalent of Hong Kong. Back in the 1850s. Uh, Britain were looking for a port uh, to counter the Russian threat in the area, uh, and they leased um, uh, an area of South Korea, which they called Port Hamilton, uh, and uh, uh, on a similar basis to Hong Kong, but it was just that the lease wasn't as long, so no, nobody uh, these days remembers it happening, but it, it was there as a military base, really, um, to protect against the Russian threat. I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you if all of the Hamiltons are named after the same Hamilton, but clearly that's not the case, but based on the one in the Czech Republic alone. No, uh, they're named after a huge number of different ones. um, There are a large number of Hamiltons in America, and there most of them are named after Alexander Hamilton, who is also the person that the, the recent musical is about. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Hamilton the Musical. We have, yes, uh, absolutely. And, yep, uh, and that's Alexander Hamilton, and most of the ones in, in America are named after him. Um, but around the world, they're, they're named after a whole host of different Hamiltons, uh, and none after Lady Hamilton, which is uh, a lot of people think that um, Lady Hamilton would have been uh, who they were named after, but I haven't found one that was. Uh, the The one that I'm sitting in was named after a, uh, an English uh, army captain who was involved in the Maori Wars here in, in New Zealand. 
I, by the way, you mentioned the, the play, the musical Hamilton. I would certainly hope that you have a stack of books in the lobby for sale at that theater. Well, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> uh, it would be lovely to be able to get them there. Uh, although I think we did a very, very good job on producing the book, we've done a less good job on selling it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, ha- ha- having said that, we are in profit already, and uh, and all um, all the cover price now is going to uh, charity in one form or another. Uh, obviously, the the Mountain Kids Club over there. Uh, are selling it and, and taking uh, a proportion of it, but what they don't take is going to Rotary Charities anyway, because, uh, uh, as I say, uh, that was what uh, it was written for in the first place. Is there a Hamilton on every continent? Um, well, Antarctica probably not. Okay, fair enough. Uh, although, actually, actually, no, I think... Um, yeah, I'm not sure about Antarctica, to be honest. Oh, yes, I've got one. Mount Hamilton, uh, uh, named in 1903 on, on Antarctica. Uh, there's also one in outer space, believe it or not. Um, there's asteroid 492 Hamiltonia, uh, which, was discover- which was discovered in 1899. And the reason that was called Hamiltonia uh, was it was discovered by the astronomers uh, the, Lick, uh, the Lick Observatory on Mount Hamilton in California. Um, so there you go. I'm wondering if that asteroid has an LRT system. That's an inside joke. You won't get that. But anyway, um, we, we, no. it's a long thing. Um, I, so, okay, there's a lot of these places, though, that as you ri- have written them in the book, there are fascinating stories and connections. And I want to go through just a few of them that you've touched on here because there's some really interesting ones yeah. that, are, that are around. Somehow, there is a Hamilton that is connected to the Chattanooga Choo Choo? There is, yes. Can you explain? Uh, um, Yes, uh, I I may have to... In America, there are uh, a number of counties as well as um, towns called um, uh, Hamilton. And Hamilton County, Tennessee, um, is uh, where the Chattanooga Choo Choo comes in because Chattanooga is the county seat of Hamilton County, Tennessee. You say, you write that, and this one I'm fascinated by. Now, we don't obviously, uh, well, maybe not obviously, but we don't have a great connection to the game of cricket over here. I know you do. But apparently, yeah. Hamilton, yeah. there are connections to the origin of the game of cricket. That, that There are. Um, and the, the game of cricket really originated in a place called Hambledon, which is H-A-M-B-L-E-D-O-N, uh, on in uh, in England, uh, and the original uh, basis for the name Hamilton was from a Walter Fitzgilbert of Hambledon, and in those days people were often named after the town that they were from. So he was of Hambledon, and as he moved north, he moved up to Scotland via Leicestershire. The Hambledon got convoluted into Hamilton, uh, and that's where the Hamilton uh, comes from. But he actually originated from the same place that cricket originated, though the cricket originated rather later. Um, But his family then became the first Dukes of Hamilton uh, up in Scotland. So really, all of us here and there where you are and all the other Hamiltons, the 129, were really Hambledons, not Hamiltons, if you go back to the origin. uh, 
if you go right back to the start, yeah. And I, I you know, I should have looked this up, but does the does the word Hamilton or Hamilton does it actually mean anything, or is it simply a name? I think it's simply a name. Certainly, the Hamilton is simply sure, a name. Sure, sure. Other than the name of these 129 Hamiltons, when you were studying all of them and going through them and researching, is there, other than the name, is there anything in common that they all have, or is it 129 different stories? They're pretty much 129 different stories, and some fairly unknown ones. You know, even sitting here in, in New Zealand, there are two Hamiltons in New Zealand, and 99% of New Zealanders wouldn't have known that the second one was here, uh, because we're a... Um, we're a big, in New Zealand terms, a big city. Hamilton, New Zealand's the fourth biggest city in New Zealand. Uh, but you would laugh, it's only got a population of 160,000, and that's the fourth biggest in the country. Um, but the other one uh, is a very, very small place that no one has really heard of, but it, it was a big mining uh, centre 150 years ago. So, it, Have you been to any of the others? Um I've been to a few, but not that many, largely in uh, uh, Australia. Uh, I've been to two or three of the Australian ones, uh, both the New Zealand ones, um, but beyond that, not really. Clearly, the, the book that, uh, the, the, um, the fundraiser over here that has brought this book yep. back into the fore uh, has created, as yep. means that people here in Hamilton have become aware of the book, but have you received any feedback from other Hamiltons around the world? Has this book got to any of those other places? Uh, oh, it's got to, um, you know, quite a lot because anywhere that there was a Rotary Club, um, they were um, selling them initially. Um, interesting, so some of the smaller ones, uh, there's almost an inverse uh, law that the smaller the place, the more interested they are in it. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's something to that. I can understand that. So, so there's one in Virginia, for instance, which has got a population of about um, 400, uh, and I've sold over 40 books there. Um, well, if I had that sort of hit rate around the world, um, <laughs> we'd be doing very well. You'd be John um, Grisham if we, it was that rate. Well, that's right. <laughs> um, but in our own Hamilton, uh, obviously, because it got a lot more coverage here, um, we would have sold over 1,500 here, and, it, and pretty much every business has got one in their reception area, you know. Um, so, yes, it's, it's, it was good fun doing it, and it's been a success. Have you, are you sure that you got all the Hamiltons? Could there be some that well, slipped through I the cracks? Say is, all I can say is that no one has let me know that I've missed one. Um, that, that's as confident as I can be. I have no other way of, of knowing, but no one has come back to me saying that you've left us out. Well, if you are including mountains in Antarctica and asteroids with, uh, with numeric names, <laughs> I am pretty convinced that your research has been rather thorough and it's, uh, look, I'm looking I, I, forward. I would like, go ahead. I'd like to point out not, neither of those are included with the, within the 129, the count of 129. It would be cheat, cheating to count an asteroid in that. It is um, from everything I know, and I have not seen a copy of the book yet, but I'm intending to buy one. Uh, it, it is a yeah, big, it is a uh, 250 almost page book with uh, beautiful color photos of all these places and a ton yeah, of uh, research. Yes, but there's over 300 color photos. It, it's uh, an A4 size hardback 
um, copy table book. I look forward to getting my hands on one. Uh, Tim Brooker, he, uh, he is the author. Thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, enjoy the day down in New Zealand. It's, uh, what's the weather like in New Zealand today? It's absolutely horrible today. <laughs> uh, it, it, we've had an awful lot of rain recently, but uh, um, anyway. Thank you, Tim, for your time. Really appreciate it. it, it yeah, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, you can find this book. Let me tell you where in Hamilton, if you're interested. Uh, and again, I think this is really a really interesting thing to have 129 places. And again, nothing in common except for the name. But just before I forget, you can get this. I, I was given a list. Um, Salon AG, which is at 440 Concession Street. So up on the mountain. Bulletproof Heating and Air Conditioning, which is also on concession at 540 concession and clearly you're going to have to go to concession street to get one of these speedy subs at 562 concession so if you're up there uh and you want to get a copy of this book that's where they're available the proceeds go to uh what did i say the proceeds go to the proceeds are going to uh what did i say it was mountain kids right Yes, Mountain Kids Club. Sorry, I forgot about that. Uh, let me again tell you again. Salon AG, 440 concession. Bulletproof Heating and Air Conditioning, 540 concession. Speedy Subs, 562 concession street. Unfortunately, I don't have a price for you. I don't know what it's going to be. That's an eclectic group of shops uh, you got right there. I assume that they are somehow connected with yes. friends or, yes. Uh, that genuinely is one of the most fascinating, to me, I don't know what it is, but he's one of the most fascinating guests and, and topics. I, I think it's, well, it's, it's, it's a weird one because you, th- I know, I knew there were other Hamiltons. I didn't know there were that many of them. And if you sat down and started going, huh, I wonder the one thing, and we got to go to break. The one thing that we do have in common, and I, maybe I, maybe I pick out weird things that I find interesting that we really shouldn't be called Hamilton. If truth be told, if we went back, we should be called Hambledon. That's, that really should be the name of this city and all the cities because they all originated in Scotland with that name and it morphed into Hamilton. I, and you know what I never asked? <laughs> Whether there are any Hambledons that fall into the list as well. If there are any that would be extras. I don't know that the, uh, the Hambledon Tiger Cats really, really <laughs> rolls off the tongue. Well, it's because well. you're not used to it. No, I, I, I just, I don't think it works. Be, well, you might've come up with a different name. The Hambledon Highlanders. See, because then it would have been more Scottish. Probably. And then the Box J Boys kilts would have actually made some sense. See, we're solving all the world's problems tonight here on the Scott Radley Show. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We are going to chat about one of those two things that you do not ever, apparently, so go the rules, that you do not ever talk about in polite company. Not sex. We're not going to talk about sex tonight. That will be for another time. We'll, we'll bring up sex at some point, but not tonight. We are going to talk tonight about religion. And there's two reasons for that. The first one is there is a new study that has been done and the results are now out about Canadians' religious beliefs. Secondly, what comes from that study is that many of us, probably far more than a lot of people would believe or would expect, many of us are religious and would probably be more than happy to talk about their beliefs. But somehow, as I said off the top, we have deemed it to be one of those things you don't talk about. Ray Pennings is the vice president of Cardis, a Christian think tank that has combined with Angus Reed to do this polling and has brought forward the numbers. He joins me now. Ray, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, breaking this down into the simplest possible way, uh, as I understand it, what the poll showed was 19% of Canadians are not religious. They're not believers. They, they are agnostic or atheist or whatever else. 30% are uncertain about spiritual things or religious things, but 30% are privately faithful and 21% are religiously committed Uh, That means that over half the people in this country, it would seem, have a strong or pretty strong religious belief system, which I think is a number that a lot of people would not expect. Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of things. First of all, you know, as you know, 80% of the population, when you ask them about various religious activities, um, do something. They pray, they read a holy scripture, um, they're involved, you know, they have a sense of God. Uh, so, the, you know, obviously the 20% that are extremely religious are participate in a community of worship, and it's part of their identity. But for 80% of us, um, there is some engagement with religion at whatever level, even if we're not sure about it. What also is interesting is we ask, so, you know, what does this mean for your daily life? Does it, does it, is it part of your identity? Uh, 54% said yes. Um, does it shape what you do day to day? 55% said yes. Let's stop there Uh, for just one second though, because that to me again is one of those numbers that a lot of people I think would not expect because the, the polite or the common version would be, you know what? Okay. You can have your religion as long as it's not part of, you know, as long as you just sort of keep it quiet to yourself. But if people are saying this is determining choices that I'm making and philosophies that I'm abiding by and rules that I'm living by, that that's much more impactful than we're giving it credit for. Absolutely. Um, how do you think about public issues and the problems facing of society? 52% of Canadians say religion helps inform how they think about it. Now, you know, when you dig into the numbers and this, uh, you know, this was a poll of over 2000 Canadians. Um, you know, there are 50, 60 questions along the way, and they're all available online on the Angus Reid website. So you can dig and parse, you know, lots of interesting sub-stories. But I think the big overall story is that while we, um, we, the pub, we live in a society, um, you know, people, people want government to be secular. They're not, they're not saying we want government to be religious, but they say that the issues in the public square um, faith has an important role to play, and it affects how people behave. I think the other thing is it's not just in relation to government. There is an orientation um, that the more religious you are, you see this pronounced, in which you know there were questions of what's more important to you. Do you see the world in terms of your own self and your own fulfillment or concern for your neighbor? Um, there is a correlation between religiosity and altruism, and it's expressed in caring for the poor, it's expressed in charitable giving, it's expressed in the issues people are concerned about. So there is a direct linkage between religiosity in the public square, which is far more prevalent than is usually talked about, and various acts of concern for our neighbor. There would be, and I don't think you would disagree with me here, there would be an awful lot of people who would not describe themselves as religious who would probably bristle at that suggestion, that would say that people who are religious as a, or more of them tend to be more generous or more uh, whatever you just described. That, that Do you agree that that would probably cause some consternation? 
It may cause some consternation, but um, prior to the study, back in 2010, I published a report based on Stats Canada data that looked at volunteering and charitable giving in Canada. Uh, What was remarkable, uh, there were 85,000 charities in Canada, roughly half are religious. So we said, okay, let's, let's eliminate them from the study for a moment. Let's just talk about secular charities. Let's assume religious people provide support for religious charity. Let's just talk about secular charities. Um, people who were religious gave more to secular charities than, um, than those who were not. As a matter of fact, more about 80% in round numbers of charitable giving in Canada as reported by Stats Canada on our tax re- uh, claimed on our tax receipts in 2010. Roughly 80% of the giving came from 29% of the population. 23 of that 29% were very serious about their religion. So, Ray, why then, um, uh, let me back up, when we hear about religious people in society and we talk about people in the States, it's often mocked as, you know, the, the people down in the States who are the Bible thumpers or the Bible belt or whatever. If there is suggestion that there is a larger percentage of the Canadian population that actually has strong religious views than we are suggesting, why why do we not hear about that? Why does Canada seem so secular then? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of things, and that's also in the data that we have. When you ask about religious institutions, or you ask about words that are traditionally associated with religion, there is a discomfort. So there is a distinction made um, in, in where people are at in terms of what they privately believe and how it affects their behavior and their view and engagement with religious institutions. There's a disconnect there. And, you know, you can dig in and, and speculate as to the reasons for that, and I suspect they're, they're complex, and I don't think there's, a, there's one single answer to that. I also think that when you take a look at um, some of the issues, uh, you know, you, you started off the talk, top about saying sex and religion are the two things you're not supposed to talk about. One of the questions we did is we asked people to choose uh, in terms of the views of the sexual revolution. Is this, um, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And um, basically it's half and half along the way. Um, what is very interesting is that when you take a look at um, women, 35 and over, 62 thirds of them, are saying that our society is too sexually open now, that they are, and it, it's a very, women 35 and over are out of, out of the norms of the rest of the population in this regard. What it suggests is that we haven't found a way to, you know, the new normal, following the rules now, is about sexual openness. And religion is sort of often mocked as being repressive and having, you know, controlling, if you will. At the same time, there are a lot of victims, if I can put that in scare quotes, um, of the sexual revolution that are saying, wait a minute, maybe this isn't all that it's been cracked up to be. Maybe the things that come with it aren't all worth it. Maybe we need to think of these things within a broader context. So when you start taking a look, and there are dozens of those sorts of examples embedded within this poll, when you take a look at specific issues along the way, I think people are struggling. Um, I don't think I think this is a challenge to the religious institutions in our country who have not necessarily answered these questions in a way that has connected with the population. 
but certainly it is a counter to the popular narrative that um, that religion is is marginal. It's not. It's it's quite mainstream. I would suspect that at least part of it too is the fact that you know we all know what the Canadian thing is, is you don't rock the boat, you don't stir things up, you're polite, you don't start arguments just for the sake of starting arguments. And so we know that sometimes those discussions, the religious discussions could do that. But the thing, if that, even if that's the case then, if these numbers are correct, would we not expect people who are religious, either openly or more quietly, to vote en masse for things that matter to them? Because we don't, do we really see that happening in Canada? It's interesting when you take a look. We did ask some questions about voting patterns, and regardless of religiosity, actually, it's religious. Religion is less of a factor in voting than um, than is ordinarily perceived to be. Most Canadians are centrists. Um, those who are so, if you take the poll, the four groups that you described off the top, you sort of to, to round out the numbers, you've got 20% on one side that are very religious, 20% on the other that are very hostile to religion, and 60% in the middle that sort of cut in half. If you take the um, the two extreme groups of 20% each, if you're anti-religious, it's roughly two-thirds on the left, one-third on the right, and if you're very religious, it's more two-thirds on the right, one-third on the left. So the it's, not all, it's not all one political side? Absolutely not. It's, um, and there are different em- emphasis within religious communities as well in terms of how this expresses itself. So this does not mean that there's a uniformity on public issues. There are significant debates. Because that's because, sorry, Ray, because that's always what we seem to think of in the States, that there is uniformity. And and that certainly, I don't know the U.S. numbers as well, but I have read some polls that suggest that that's not quite as as, um, straightforward as often is made out um, in the the States either. But certainly in Canada, what the numbers, uh, what the numbers do point to is that, you know, there is not a consensus on the issues, but when people think about these issues, their faith and their faith convictions are informing and shaping how they how they approach them. The the different the way the numbers break down, um, and again between the we'll we'll call it the very religious and the somewhat religious. I, I don't know if that's the accurate or a fair way to say it, but we'll call it that for now. Is this because we've we you could be born in a home to Christian parents or Jewish parents or Muslim parents, but you're not really practicing that religion, but you would still consider yourself to be, if someone said, what religion are you? That's what you would attach to the document. And so you, when you talk about not really religious, you've got some background, but it's not really necessarily an overriding part of your life. Yeah. We asked, it's a composite. Putting the people in the categories was a composite of a number of questions, which asked, Everything from private religious activities, do you pray, do you read a scripture, to participation in communal activities, to a sense of, is this, how important is this to me? So it's not a single question. Um, so there are different expressions of that. You also have to remember that, um, you know, our, the makeup of our country in terms of its religious makeup is, is changing also with immigration. Ironically, immigrants tend to be more religious than native-born Canadians. So um, as we have um, as we have increased reliance on immigration, the majority of people who are members of visible minorities and who are um, who are not born in Canada 
uh, tend to be more on the religious spectrum than um, than the native-born Canadians. Okay, so let's assume that all the numbers are absolutely correct, and there's no reason to think otherwise. This is a poll that's done by you and Angus Reid that's a reputable group. So that, that's fine. If half of Canadians, slightly more, 51% really, uh, hold committed religious views, as these numbers would suggest, what does that how does that change or should it change anything about governance or policy or should governments be looking at this a little bit differently? Because again, I go back, I think that many people in government distance themselves or separate, as we always hear, the separation of church and state. And as a result, there is a perception that we don't want religious viewpoints to affect or drive our decisions. But if half the people who are out there have a religious viewpoint, should that change some of the thought process behind governance. I think it should change the thought process, but it should change the thought process to reflect reality. Let's take a look at, you know, healthcare facilities. Go, you know, go in the Hamilton area and take a look at the number of nursing homes that are sponsored by religious, ethnic, or faith groups. And often they overlap. Um, take a look at social services. Try to imagine downtown Hamilton without the Salvation Army, without In on the Rock, without all these you know, the um, the largest homes in Hamilton for um, those with developmental um, handicaps, um, you know, Indwell. There are major services that are being provided, which are being provided by organizations that have fairly clear religious motivations. Um, it's an expression of loving your neighbor. That, in fact, is, whether it comes to social services, whether it comes to even arts and culture, when it comes to much of how we live our lives day to day, religion is far more present than is often given credit for. Well, and we just have a minute here left. Uh, you wrote in the National Post today, I'll quote from you, religious faith has a role to play in Canada's public life. This is the, uh, the end quotes. That's the conclusion that is drawn from these numbers. So what is that role then? What, what role should religion be playing in public life? Well, I approach it to the fact that to some extent or other, we are all believers, even those who are anti Those who, if you ask the question about religion, if you ask the question about God, no is as much of a, an answer as yes. And so there is a sense in which what we need to do is bring those assumptions into the debate where we can respectfully and civilly engage in that and not privilege one side of the debate as if that's somehow a neutral answer, because it's not. So should governing parties be considering religious viewpoints then when they are trying to make laws? Because, I mean, for example, uh, we had a situation not that long ago, we've had it a number of times, where, for example, probably the most contentious debate that always seems to revolve around the idea of religion or faith is abortion. And we had a government come in and say, you cannot be against this. So leave your, whatever your viewpoints are, you cannot have them impact this kind of decision. Should we then be saying, hey, half the country says otherwise? Or should we be saying, no, no, we don't want to run the risk of potentially walking down the road into a theocracy, so we want to stick with that? No, actually, I would argue that the dogmatic ones are the, are the ones who say you cannot. Um, that that you, you can have an opinion on this, but if it's different than ours, you're not allowed to participate in public life. Who's being the dogmatic one in that sort of um, approach? Who's being inclusive when we, when we know there are diversity of points of view? 
I'm not, you know, political parties and governments in a pluralistic society clearly need to, you know, be neutral in the sense of not favoring or coming from any one religious point of view. And we also need to respect the fact that people of religion don't agree on any of these issues either. But we should not dismiss people's participation in public life because we happen to disagree with um, with their religious perspectives. Ray Pennings, Vice President of CARDIS. Um, this, I assume, this is up on the CARDIS website. Would that be correct? Uh, there is a... Or on, on Angus Reid? It's on the Angus Reid website. It will be on the CARDIS website, but I think it was released today by Angus Reid, so um, there as well as the National Post. And this is one of a series of polls that we are partnering with Angus Reid on and uh, we'll be releasing over the course of the year. Fascinating stuff, Ray. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, again, we... I, I know there are people listening right now because you know how this, this this is the reason, partly, why a lot of people say don't ever have this discussion because right now there are some people listening who are saying you can't consider any kind of religious viewpoint when doing government because that's how you walk down the road towards a theocracy. That's how you end up with Iran. Or that's how you end up with these places where it's it's run by the religious rulers who are dogmatic. And it's an interesting discussion. And certainly we don't want to get there. But I think the last point, and, and, and Ray made that point, I think, that this should not be that, that you don't follow one particular religion. You can't really do that in a pluralistic society now. But I think the interesting point that he made at the end is we have had many times in recent months, recent years, we have had people be told, and you can go on, go to letters to the editor, go on social media, you can listen to it in public life. If you hold strong religious views, your views are not welcome. Well, that's, I, I see, I don't believe that. I, I don't believe that because someone holds strong religious views that they should either be excluded from public life or B, should have to bury them and operate as if they don't hold those views. And this goes back to all the other discussions we've ever had on this show about free speech and about listening to other people and about respecting other ideas that you disagree with, but not shutting them down and not screaming them down and immediately saying they are some sort of ist or ism or whatever else. We do that way too fast. I find this study very interesting though, that 51% of Canadians hold strong or reasonably strong religious views. I bet you that if I had asked you before the show what the number was, most of you would have said a number much, much smaller than that. Now, it's your choice whether you believe those numbers, but it's done by Angus Reid and Cardis, so, uh, you know, it's not nobody. Interesting stuff. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.